We've been following the ministry of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning as we come to chapter 8, we're going to begin at verse 11. And the context of where we're coming from in the book of Mark this morning is Jesus is in this period of his ministry where there uh, are huge crowds coming out to follow him. He can't get away from the crowds. But there's also significant opposition. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, and also some of the political leaders, the followers of Herod, have come out against Jesus, and they're plotting against him. They're trying to set him up for his downfall. And as part of that whole environment, the Pharisees come to Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, where we read, And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. It sounds strange to us, doesn't it, that people would come to Jesus, who, as we've studied in the Gospel of Mark already, has performed remarkable signs, incredible miracles. The blind see, the lame walk. Those who are on the edge of death are healed. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see the works we've already understood to be a part of the ministry of Jesus just from our time in the Gospel of Mark already. So it seems strange to us that somebody would come up to Jesus and say, show me a sign. You almost think that Jesus should have responded by looking around and saying, hello, haven't you been following me around? Haven't you been seeing? I'll give you a whole resume of signs. Well, here's a man, he was born blind, and I healed him. And look at this man, he used to be lame, but now he walks. And this poor girl was on the edge of death, but now she lives, and over and over and over again. But yet these Pharisees come, in verse 11, it says, they began to dispute with him, seeking a sign from heaven, testing him. You see, the specific sign that they wanted was what they considered to be a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus, the miracles you've done, all that's very nice. But all that's done right here on earth. We want you to do something spectacular in the sky. They probably have in mind when Elijah called down fire from heaven on a few different dramatic occasions. And they say, now really prove your stuff here, Jesus. Now, you almost wonder within yourself, what would you have done if you were Jesus? Let's turn it around. Not what would Jesus do. What would you do if you were in this situation? I think I would be strongly tempted to say, you want a sign? I'll show you a sign. You know, and move the sun around a little bit or or do something spectacular in the sky. You know, write their name in fire in the sky and then write an X through it or something like that. (laughs) I'll show you a sign. But you know, Jesus didn't do that at all. Look at it. Verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. The the heart that these men came to Jesus with, where their minds were at, the the, the manner in which they came, it grieved Jesus deeply, so deeply that the the pressure sort of built up within him and he had to let it out with a sigh. He sighed deeply, not just physically, but spiritually. It says, look at it there, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit because he knew that the request of these men revealed something about their hearts. It revealed how deeply seated their unbelief was. Because, friends, if Jesus can show you sign after sign after sign, and you still come back to him and say, well, those aren't good enough, show me another one. 
It shows that the problem isn't that there's a sign or not a sign. The problem is you don't want to believe. What do you think would have happened if Jesus would have performed a fancy sign in the heavens right then? They probably would have said, well, do another so we know that it's really from you. When you don't want to believe, you can always find something to knock the thing down. You can always find some point of criticism, something that makes the test that you've just given invalid. See, my friends, that's where these Pharisees were. They just wouldn't be pleased, and it grieved Jesus so deeply. Do you know why it grieved him so deeply? It's because in large measure, there's really nothing that God can do with a heart like that. When you stand before God and just kind of say, well, Lord, you know, uh, prove it to me and do X, Y, and Z, and then when God does X, Y, and Z, and you say, well, now you need to do uh, T, U, and V. God says, there's not much I can do with that heart. That heart is just established and persistent in its rejection of me. These Pharisees thought that perhaps if they saw a particular kind of sign, then they might believe. But friends, Jesus never did miracles with the intention of convincing hardened unbelievers. You and I might do it for that reason. Say to the Pharisees, well, you want to believe? I'll show you and do some spectacular miracle. But Jesus never did miracles to to convince a hardened unbeliever. We might have thought that in this situation, Jesus might have called a, a, a blind man over to him and said, well, let me show you something here, and, and healed him right then. Well, doesn't that prove it to you? Jesus never did miracles for that purpose. Do you know why Jesus reached out his hands towards a blind man and touched him and healed him? Not to prove something to somebody else. No, that would just be using that blind man, wouldn't it? They'd be looking at that blind man as an object and say, I'm going to use you to make my point. Do you know why Jesus reached out his hand to heal that blind man? Because he loved the blind man and he cared about him and he had compassion upon him. That's what these Pharisees couldn't see. And it grieved Jesus. Sometimes people believe that if others see enough signs, they'll come to faith. Jesus knew that isn't the case. Do you know what you need to do to come to faith? You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You need to believe on him. Say, well, you know, I'm trying to believe. You know, the Bible doesn't say to try to believe. It says to believe. Stop trying to believe. Just believe. And I don't mean believe just in the sense that you believe Jesus lived and died on the cross. I mean believe in the sense of putting your trust upon him. You believe in the chair that you're sitting on right now. Because you're sitting and you're at ease. I don't see anybody holding themselves up to their hands. Everybody seems fairly calm out there. Nobody seems to be particularly stressed out because you think the chair's going to fall. You believe on it. You put your trust in it. Put your trust on Jesus Christ the same way, except not just for the sitting of your seat, but for the saving of your soul, for your eternal destiny. Oh, it's a powerful, powerful thing. Now, Jesus wanted to warn his disciples about the danger of the scribes and Pharisees. And so in verse 13, he gives them a warning. And he says, And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You say, well, leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod. Well, maybe we're not as familiar with these pictures as they might have been in the uh, ancient world, but this leaven wasn't just merely yeast. 
Rather, the idea of it was a biblical picture, a biblical symbol of sin. Just like a little bit of leaven gets into a lump of dough and influences the whole dough. And a matter of fact, it makes it puff up, doesn't it? That's what sin does to it. A little bit of sin can corrupt a great mass. And a little bit of sin or a little bit of pride can puff up a person to a huge measure. And that's why leaven or yeast was a common picture of sin in Jewish thinking and in Jewish vocabulary back then. After all, they had the Feast of Passover, where for the Feast of Passover, what did you eat? You only eat unleavened bread. You get all the leaven out of the house. Nothing made of yeast. And then after that, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's all about getting sin, getting impurities out. That's what it's a spiritual picture of. So when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod, he says, beware of the way they think, beware of their sinful habits of thinking and the sinful things that they do. It's not that hard to understand, is it? Well, maybe it was. Look at it here, verse 16. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. Now, can you imagine that? They're thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, oh, but this is terrible. Jesus, we're so sorry. Oh, this is awful. Look at it. You know, he, he's talking to us about leaven of Pharisees and leaven of Herod. I guess they have bread. They have leavened bread, but we don't have any bread. We just brought one loaf. And it shows you where their minds were at. They were only thinking about food. They weren't thinking about the spiritual bread that fills a person's stomach. No, it fills a person's soul. They were only thinking about the physical bread that fills a person's stomach. So look at Jesus, a little bit exasperated perhaps in verse 17. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, I'm sure it went something like this, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? You see Jesus' message to them? Guys, I'm not talking about bread. Bread's no problem for me. Haven't I illustrated that? You've got one loaf. I could feed about 5,000 people with that one loaf. Bread isn't the issue. The issue is what you take into your soul. And if you think the same way spiritually as the Pharisees did, if you think the same way spiritually as the followers of Herod did, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Now, he's going to get onto that subject a little bit more in just a few moments. But Mark intersperses a a, a miracle here that's very unique and very wonderful. Look at it here, verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and he begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. And Jesus said, No wonder, because you got that spit in your eye. Wipe it out of your eyes. No, no, verse 25. (laughs) And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. I have to say, last week we were kind of remarkably surprised when Jesus put his spit on the tongue of a man who couldn't talk very well. Jesus probably spit on his hand and then touched the man's tongue, and then the man was healed and could talk perfectly. And we're kind of going, Jesus, you know, don't you know anything about hygiene? What's going on here? But here we see Jesus spitting and healing again. 
And we ask Jesus, what's going on with this? Actually, there's two remarkable things about this miracle. I mean, first of all, it's that Jesus is spitting in the cause of healing again. Apparently, I don't think he... It sounds funny to even talk about this. I don't think he spit right into the guy's eye. He probably, again, spit on his hand and went over and touched the guy's eyes. You think, well, why did you do this, Jesus? Why? I mean, there's all different ways you could heal, but why did you do this? Well, there's been a lot of different suggestions offered. You know, of course, in the ancient world, saliva was thought to have a curative power. In fact, just in between services, I heard a wonderful story from from Owen Chamberlain. He was telling me about uh, an explanation of this that he heard on one occasion, where these Bible translators from Wycliffe Bible translators were off in some uh, distant uh, aboriginal area, and there they were translating the scriptures to some tribal group. And they got to this part where it talks about Jesus healing people when applying spit to the eyes. And the translators wanted to make sure that they had it right, and so they went out and they were reviewing it with some native people, and they got very excited when they heard about this. And they called other people around, and they told them this story. They were very excited about this idea of spit being put in the eyes of a man and him being healed. And once they understood it, and once they saw the story, they were all amazed and they were all converted. They said, Jesus is the greatest healer of all. He's the greatest spiritual man of all. Because in that culture, they believed that saliva had a curative power and their witch doctors would spit on a person's wound. And it was held that if the witch doctor was a powerful witch doctor, the spit would cure the wound. And when they saw that Jesus did this, they said, well, well, he's more powerful than any of our witch doctors. Look at what he can do. Heal blind eyes with his own saliva. Well, it could have been something like that, relating that in the culture. I got to say, though, one explanation I thought was kind of interesting was from an old commentator named Adam Clark. He sort of had an interesting perspective on it. He said that Jesus did this merely to separate the guy's eyelids. He said that in some cases of blindness, in some cases of eye problems, people's eyes get so gummed up with just junk and, and, and residue in there that they can't even open their eyes. And so he said Jesus just spit on his hand, rub it in the guy's eyes to knock away the gunk so the guy could open his eyes. Now, what's interesting about this is this is what Adam Clark said. He said, it didn't require any miracle to open the guy's eyes, so Jesus did that just with spit. But it did require a miracle to make those eyes see again, and Jesus did that with a miracle. Well, I don't know. You can ask for whatever explanation you want, but I want to make a firm promise here to you. If you ever come up after service for prayer, there's not going to be any spitting going on. Well, it's even more interesting about this miracle is look at it here in verse 24, where it says, and he asked him if he saw anything and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And he put his hands on him again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Do you see how that's different from every other miracle that we ever see Jesus performing? Never did Jesus do a partial miracle except right here. I mean, in this one, he does it and he goes, well, how's that work? It's like he's trying on shoes or something. And he goes, well, it doesn't quite fit. You know, can I try on another pair? Okay, well, here it is. Oh, well, this one's perfect. Great. Well, Jesus, what's up with this? Are you losing it a little bit, Jesus? You know, maybe you just didn't have the power to come and heal the guy in the first time. You needed two times. No, no, no. That's not it at all. At all. Obviously, Jesus had all power. If Jesus wanted to, he could have healed the man instantly, as he had done on many, many previous occasions. Then why didn't Jesus heal the man instantly? For a very important purpose. I don't think the purpose was for the sake of the blind man. I think the purpose was for the sake of his disciples who were watching. 
I think Jesus wanted to illustrate something to his disciples. What you saw of them in that whole conversation about the leaven and the Pharisees and do we have any bread and that whole business, that shows that the disciples were kind of blind spiritually, right? Matter of fact, Jesus says, he says, do you not perceive nor understand? And then he says, having eyes, do you not see? He said that to the disciples in verse 18. They were suffering from spiritual blindness. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. I think Jesus did this miracle in a gradual way to show the disciples, you know what, you guys are pretty spiritually blind right now. And you're going to see, I'm going to heal that, but it's only going to come gradually. It's not going to happen all at once. It's going to come gradually. And friends, truth be told, isn't this the way that most of the work of God is done in our life? It's done gradually. I mean, that's how he works in our life. Sometimes we don't wish that was the case. Sometimes we wish, you know, we're having a problem in some area and we just want to bring it to God and God just fix it all right now. Let's say there's somebody, and I've known people like this, they're having a struggle with some personal habit in their life. And maybe there was another personal habit in their life before and and, and when they got saved or when they took it to the Lord, boom, it was gone. It was just gone. You know, one day they did it and the next day it's gone. But this other personal habit that they're trying to get right with God, it's like a grind every day, and they have to keep bringing it back to the Lord and keep bringing it back to the Lord. Lord, why don't you just fix it like you did that other thing? God has a purpose in it. Much of God's work is done in our life gradually. We may wish that it was all done at once, but oftentimes it's done little by little. And I think Jesus was trying to show his disciples, this is how your blindness is going to be healed, little by little. Now notice this, verse uh, 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Wasn't that an interesting question? You could see Jesus walking with his disciples on the road. He goes, hey guys, what are the people saying about me? Who do men say that I am? Now if we were to ask that question, it would probably be asked out of uh, insecurity. We'd probably want to know, what do they really think about me? You know, do they think I'm okay? Uh, can, you, can you give me some encouragement here? Usually we know that's an invitation for other people to tell us nice things. That wasn't the situation with Jesus at all. Jesus did not ask this question because he had a twisted dependence upon the opinion of others. Nor should I say he did not ask this question because he didn't know the answer. He knew the answer. He knew what people said about him and he didn't even rely on that. He knew who he was. He asked this question as an introduction to a more important follow-up question. So let's see what the disciples answer here. Verse 28. And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Wasn't that interesting? The people looked at Jesus and they say, well, there's John the Baptist. Now that's a compliment, isn't it? Wouldn't you wish somebody would say, that per- I think that person's John the Baptist. You'd go, wow, you really think so? This is great. But it doesn't measure up to who Jesus is. John the Baptist was a man who called the nation to repentance and national reform. He stood boldly before the people and he said, people, we got to get right with God. Now, did Jesus do that in his ministry? Yes. But that isn't all that he did. Now, other people said, look at it there, verse 28, that he was Elijah. Elijah was a fantastic prophet of the Old Testament who worked wonderful miracles. And did Jesus work wonderful miracles? Well, of course he did. 
But was that all he did? No, he was much more than an Elijah. And then if you notice the third category in verse 28 is one of the prophets. Those are people who speak for God. And people heard the teaching of Jesus. They heard what he was. And, and they, they heard him teaching. This man is a prophet. He's one of the prophets. And, and was Jesus a prophet? Did he teach the truth of God? Yes, he did. But he was so much more than that. Friends, let's remember that Jesus is a man of many facets. If you look at him as a man who called other people to repentance and to get right with God, you have the truth, but just part of the truth. If you look at a man who worked miracles and could do spectacular things, you have the truth, but just part of it. If you look at him as a man who teaches the words of God, you have the truth, but just part of it. And that was the problem with these opinions of the public upon whom Jesus was. Friends, all that was a setup for the question that comes in verse 29. This is the important question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Friends, it was fine for the disciples to know what other people thought about Jesus. But Jesus had to ask them as individuals what they believed about Jesus. Who do you say he is? Friends, I want you to know that God asks each and every one of us that question. And he'll ask it to us on the day of judgment. One day when we pass from this life to the next, we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give account. Friends, you're not going to see St. Peter at heaven's gates. You're not going to have to try to give him some explanation why you should let him. You're going to see the Lord himself. And you know what he's going to want to know? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Well, you could say, well, you know, the pastor told me that he was. And God will say, no, I don't want to know what the pastor thought. I want to know what you think. And say, well, you know, my my friend told me that Jesus... No, I don't want to know what your friend thinks. And say, well, you know, I read this book about Jesus, and it's a... No, I don't want to know what the book says. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Friends, you can believe all the right facts about Jesus. You can believe that he lived. You can believe that he had a spectacular ministry. You can believe that he taught what the Bible says he taught. You can believe that he died on the cross as an atonement for the sins of the world. You can believe that he rose from the dead in glory. But if you don't believe that he did it for you, and if you don't enter into that personal relationship of trust and dependence upon Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter. Then you're just having a knowledge of what other people say about Jesus. Do you realize how important this question is? Who do you say that I am? I'm not exaggerating when I say that your eternal destiny hinges on the answer to that question. Who Jesus Christ is to you. Now, when I say, who is he to you? I'm not saying, well, just go ahead and make up your own opinion. Well, I believe that Jesus uh, was actually an alien that came from Mars and that he really tried to teach people how to go back to God on the mothership, or et cetera, et cetera. Well, that might be who Jesus is to you, but the problem is it's the wrong answer. He's not those things at all. No, friends, when I stress that who is Jesus to you, I mean that you need to take the biblical understanding of Jesus and make it yours belonging to you, not just facts that you know, but a relationship that you have. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, verse 29, and Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, 
Then he charged them that no one should, that they should tell no one about him. Friends, you understand this? Peter's given this dramatic question to answer, and, and he and all the disciples, and Peter steps forward. He's a bold man, isn't he? And he steps forward and he says to Jesus, Jesus, I'll tell you who I think you are. You're the Christ. Now, friends, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. He didn't get his mail address to Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It's the ancient Greek language translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Messiah. Messiah and Christ are exactly the same word. When you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus Messiah. Peter had the boldness and the wisdom to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. Matter of fact, Jesus said something very dramatic to him. The Gospel of Matthew fills in some of the details for us on this. When he uh, heard this from Peter... Jesus said to him, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You're right on the mark, Simon. You're so on the mark that this understanding hasn't even come from yourself or any other man. This understanding has come directly from God. Right on the mark, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who saves. And then he said, Don't tell anybody about this. Now we kind of scratch our head. Well, man, Jesus is the Messiah. Shouldn't everybody know this? Well, yes and no, and I'll have to read you the following verses to explain it. Look at it here, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Friends, I I don't know if we can do it, but if I can, I'd like to... I'd like to have you enter into the minds of the disciples. For the disciples, just like any other Jewish person of that time, when they heard the word Messiah, they thought of a superman. And a superman who would rule Israel and rule the world politically and socially. They thought of a man who would come and take that boot that ground down the Jewish people under the the, the heel of Roman occupation and push away the Romans. A man who would liberate the Jews, give them their own country, and be a political and military and social superman. That's how the Jews saw the Messiah in that day. Messiah and strength were the same thing. Now, when Jesus follows up on Peter's proclamation, you're the Messiah, and starts explaining, verse 31, look at it, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, the the disciples, their brains start to fry. They cannot process this. This does not compute to them. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Jesus, Messiahs don't suffer. You're trying to say that Superman suffers. He doesn't do that. The bullets bounce off his chest, Jesus. And then he goes on. And that the Messiah will be rejected? Jesus, no, the Messiah isn't rejected. We want the Messiah. We love the Messiah. Everybody wants the Messiah. How can you say he's going to be rejected? And then he said that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and look at it there in verse 31, and be killed. And then the smoke started coming out of their ears. Jesus, we don't understand this at all. 
The Messiah is not going to be killed. He's going to rule and reign and triumph. Jesus, we know this. It was unthinkable to them that there would be a suffering Messiah. The Messiah was all about strength, not weakness. The the Messiah would be the most destructive conqueror in history. He would smash the enemies of Israel into complete extinction. And now you're telling me that you're the Messiah, but you're going to suffer, be rejected, and die? I don't get it. Now, one of the disciples had such a hard time making sense of this. Look at what he does in the middle of verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, don't you love that? Here they are. They're all talking together. Now, Peter is probably set out a little bit in front of the disciples because he's the one who said, Jesus, you're the Christ. Now, when he said that, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus told Peter, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. How do you think you'd feel if you were Peter right then? Oh, you'd be flying sky high. Now, not just that Jesus said it. It's good enough that Jesus said it. What's even better was he said it in front of all the other guys. You kind of look around and go, did you hear that? Jesus says, I hear from God. Yeah, I'm a spokesman for God. You guys hear that? Oh, yeah. You know, and and Peter's feeling pretty good right here. And so he's feeling great. So what does Peter do? So out there at the end part of verse 32, Peter took him aside. I love that. He took Jesus aside. Jesus, uh, do you mind if I have a word with you? Come on over here, Jesus. He puts his arm around Jesus. You know, Jesus, I've been thinking about this, and it says in verse 32 that he began to rebuke him. To rebuke him. Now, Jesus, what are you talking about this cross business? Come on now. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't get rejected. Messiahs don't get killed by the religious. Come on, Jesus. Let's snap out of this. Jesus, you remember the story of the little engine that could? And then he goes on, you know, and tries to encourage you, you know, and just trying to help you here, Jesus. Well, unfortunately for Peter, just as much as Jesus praised Peter in front of the other disciples, now, Jesus stops him short, turns around. I'm sure in the hearing of the other disciples, he says this to Peter, verse 33. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I bet that little bit of a little air out of uh, Peter's balloon, don't you think? Uh, Satan, Jesus? That's a little harsh, isn't it? Friends, you can see how it worked, didn't you? Now, let's understand this. Peter's intent was love for Jesus, but he was unwittingly used by Satan. Friends, do you understand? You don't have to be demon-possessed to be used of Satan. We all have to be on guard, lest we're unwittingly used. Do you see how the chain of events kind of went here? Number one, Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Number two, Peter compl- excuse me, Jesus complimented Peter, telling him that God revealed it to him. Number three, Jesus spoke of his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. Number four, Peter felt this wasn't right, and he feels that he hears, hears from God. And number five, Peter rebuked Jesus. I'm sure it was done with the best of intention. It's like, Jesus, let me help you out here. You just said that I heard from God, so hear from me on this one. And he starts telling him, no, don't go to the cross, don't do this. You don't have to go this way, Jesus. No, this can end in a good way, not in a bad way. 
But let me tell you what was wrong with what Peter said and why Peter should have known that it was wrong. Number one, what Peter said didn't line up with the scriptures. If Peter would have remembered his Old Testament, if he would have remembered, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, which speaks so clearly of the suffering and death of the Messiah, then Peter should have known, whoa, wait a minute, this is hard to accept, but it's exactly what the Bible says. He didn't do that. He should have listened to the scriptures. Number two, what Peter said was in total contradiction to the spiritual authority over him. Uh, Peter, your master just told you. Your master just told you, he's going, you have no place to tell Jesus no. What are you thinking? So Peter was wrong. And Jesus had to confront him. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Friends, it's a strong rebuke, but it's entirely appropriate. Though a moment before Peter spoke as a messenger of God, at this moment he spoke as a messenger from Satan. Jesus knew that there was a satanic strategy in discouraging him from his ministry on the cross, and Jesus was not going to allow that purpose to succeed. He saw in what Peter said a message from Satan, and he said, Satan, you're trying to get me to not go to the cross, and it's not going to work. Friends, can I point out something else too? Peter was not aware that he spoke for Satan until Jesus told him it. Does anybody think for a moment that Peter was like, okay, now I'm channeling a message from Satan right now. Okay, I'm just going to let it flow. No, that's not how it works. As a matter of fact, the moment before, I don't think Peter was aware that he was speaking from God. Now he wasn't aware that he was speaking from Satan. You know, it's often much easier to be a tool for God or for the devil than we believe. So what was Peter's problem? How did he get himself into this mess? Jesus tells us. Look at it here at the end of verse 33. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Here, Jesus exposes how Peter came into this satanic way of thinking. Peter did not make a deliberate choice. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to reject God, and now I'm going to embrace Satan. He didn't do that. All he did was let his mind settle on the things of men instead of the things of God. Friends, if you do that, you can be in a lot of trouble. If you let your mind settle on the things of men, on human ways of thinking, on human ways of analyzing, instead of on God and on God's truth, God's word, God's logic, then friends... You can be in a lot of trouble. And in Peter's case, Satan took great advantage of it. Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart coupled with man's thinking can often lead to disaster. Friends, do you see this? He's calling out and he's saying, listen, friends, you got to understand. You need to keep your mind on the things of God. Isn't that the great lesson of this? Look at it again in verse 33. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Isn't that frightening to think how we can be an unwitting tool in the hand of Satan if we do nothing but keep our minds on the things of man? Human logic, human reason, human resources. Instead of keeping our minds drenched in the word of God. Friends, you understand why now in the book of Romans where it says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
That's the work God wants to do in us. But let me remind you where it begins. It begins with you having a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So how are you going to answer that question? Who do you say that I am? How are you going to answer that question when Jesus asks it of you? Friends, unless you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one where you live with him and talk with him and, 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 and rejoice in him and trust in him for the saving of your soul, not in you, not in what you have done, not in what you can do, not in what you promise to do, but you trust in him for your eternal salvation. Friends, if you're not in that place, then you don't really know who Jesus is. I pray that some of you, if you perhaps haven't made that step of trusting in Jesus Christ, of embracing him, that this would be your morning to do it. That you'd come and say, Jesus, I, I know who Jesus is to the preacher. I know who he is to the people around me. But I want him to be my Savior, my Lord, the one who died on the cross for me. It can be that personal, that real for you. And let's pray right now and ask that the Lord works that in us. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. And I ask, Lord God, first of all, that you would give us an awareness when we slip into human ways of thinking. Help us to see things from heaven, Lord, instead of from earth. But Father, I also want to pray this morning. I pray, Lord, that everybody who sits in this room, and indeed, Lord, everybody who listens to this later, on a tape or however else, Lord, I pray that every person who hears these words this morning would be able to give the right answer to the question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And that Jesus wouldn't be someone just precious or important to others, but that each individual would have a personal relationship, a personal trust, a personal reliance upon Jesus Christ. Lord, won't you work that out in lives? Won't you make it real in the lives of people this morning? Pour out your spirit and lead, Lord, those who need to make that decision. Lead them unto you to make that kind of decision for Jesus Christ. 